Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Laura Skog and Megan Jett. We'd first like to apologize for not getting you the episode about Bobby from 2006 the other week like we had promised. Between prior commitments and audio difficulties, we're having to re-record and release the episode later this year. However, we're happy to announce that today kicks off our very special Spooky October series. (laughs) We are reviewing The Abominable Bride, the special episode of Sherlock that aired in 2016 and which takes inspiration from a number of Arthur Conan Doyle's stories, as well as previous Sherlock Holmes film adaptations. It was directed by Douglas McKinnon and stars... Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, Rupert Graves, Una Stubbs, Andrew Scott, Louise Brealey, Natasha O'Keefe, Amanda Abington, and Mark Gaddis. If you're not previously familiar with Sherlock, the series takes one of English literature's most adapted stories and updates it to 21st century London, with text messages, Google, blogs, and Twitter playing major roles, but with the familiar characters of Conan Doyle's series anchoring the stories. So this episode, which landed between the third and fourth seasons of the show, was a bit of an Easter egg in that it takes us back to London in 1895, the setting for the original stories, so that we meet the modern TV series' major characters, but retransplanted to their Victorian origins. There's Martin Bilbo Baggins Freeman, an army doctor and wounded veteran, and his new flatmate Sherlock, the world's only consulting detective, played by the internet's boyfriend and mine, Benedict Cumberbatch, and who is brilliant but also possibly completely insane. By the time our story really gets going, Holmes and Watson have achieved some celebrity as Watson publishes accounts of their exploits in the Strand magazine, and we also start meeting the rest of the gang. The good doctor's wife, Mary Morstan Watson, played by Amanda Abington, Detective Inspector Lestrade, played by... Rupert Graves. Rupert Graves. I'm sorry, Rupert Graves, who's surely listening to this podcast. And surely hates us now. And who brings our two heroes into many of Scotland Yard's cases. There's that term again. What term? Scotland Yard. Gotcha. Talked about it during... Yes. Yeah. Their irritating but basically lovable landlady, Mrs. Hudson, played by Una Stubbs, and a mysterious morgue employee named Hooper, played by Louise Brealey in drag. Lestrade comes to the boys of 221B Baker Street for help with a case that has taken a supernatural turn. A woman named Amelia Riccoletti, played by Natasha O'Keefe, seems to have gone mad put on her wedding dress, and gunned down a number of passers-by before turning the gun on herself. Then the apparently still-dead Mrs. Recoletti pops up outside an opium den in the Limehouse District to murder her husband, who had been on the way to identify her body, but who now is obviously permanently detained. Things get weirder when the boys get to the morgue. Amelia is definitely there and definitely dead, but has managed to write a note in blood on the wall. Watson notes that she was clearly in the later stages of tuberculosis, which still doesn't explain how her undead corpse is running all over London. Over the months ahead, she keeps appearing throughout the city, murdering a variety of philandering or generally terrible men, a sort of reverse ghost Jack the Ripper. In the midst of all this, Holmes and Watson pick up a new client, Lady Carmichael, whose husband Sir Eustace recently received a death threat in the mail by way of an envelope full of orange seeds. Seeds. They're so scary. They're so death threaty. Maybe they were reminding him to watch his vitamin C intake? At the same time, the ghost of Amelia Riccoletti has also turned up at the home, threatening to kill Sir Eustace herself, so the Carmichaels are having a really bad week. Holmes and Watson stake out the property overnight and rush in when the ghost seems to make her appearance, only to find that Sir Eustace is already dead. We then smash back to the present day, where Sherlock has actually doped himself up and is hallucinating his way through the Riccoletti case in order to solve what seems to be an impossible set of circumstances that he's facing in the 21st century. 
The show jumps around for a while in both time and location, but for our purposes, back in the 1890s, John's wife Mary is the one who leads her husband and Sherlock to the answer. She lures them to an abandoned church in the English countryside full of mysterious cloaked figures. Turns out that Amelia Riccoletti was part of a secret society of suffragists who worked with her to concoct an elaborate plot in which she would fake her own suicide, punish her philandering husband, commit actual assisted suicide, since she was in fact dying of tuberculosis, and then give rise to a legend that the other women would exploit to punish other evil-doing men. We find out that all the women we've met throughout the episode are involved in the plot, all supporting one another as they seek justice, and that the mysterious Hooper from the morgue is, as everyone but Sherlock has guessed, a woman passing as a man in a man's profession. Sherlock closes the adventure with a meditation on the coming battle of the sexes over women's right to vote. So, first impressions. I saw this the night it first came out, January 1st, 2016, and I was pleasantly spooked by it. You've got swirling mists and creepy undead zombie ghost brides. It's all pretty fun. But I have to admit, watching again, it seems that the show portrays drug addiction as a bit too sanitized, and it's something that Sherlock can just too easily drop when he finds a case that's interesting enough. And uh, since we have seen the opioid crisis, it seems a bit tone deaf. Little bit. I think we saw this one for the first time together. Did we see this one together? I don't remember. I'm going to assume we did. Anyway, to put my cards on the table, I was and remain a huge fan of Sherlock. So when they announced that they were producing an episode actually set in Victorian times, I pretty much lost my mind with joy. With that, let's get right down to the heart of the matter. The spooky heart of the matter. If the undead beating <laughs> under the floor, heart of the matter. If there's any particular time period in history that makes you instantly think of ghosts and creepy dolls and general spookiness, it's definitely the Victorian period. Some of this is due partly to the intense morning rituals they had, the strong interest in the afterlife, and the thick fogs that developed in London in the 19th century from industrial and residential chimney smoke. However, The Guardian talked to Dr. Ruth Robbins of Leeds Metropolitan University, and she explained that ghost stories became super popular in Victorian England because there was a greater demand for magazine content, and ghost stories were short and easy to write. An Atlas Obscura article elaborates saying that since there were so many Victorian ghost stories, the genre basically got quote-unquote codified during this time period, similar to how we think of film noir being tied inherently to the 30s through the 50s. And the Victorian-era writer we most associate with this phenomenon is, without a doubt, Charles Dickens, who gives us the association of ghost stories with Christmas time. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And it's interesting here because this episode because this episode was aired as the Sherlock series one and only Christmas special. We may be celebrating spooky October here on the podcast, but for the Victorians, as one humorist wrote in the 1890s, whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Or when one Laura meets around a fire. Exactly. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. Obviously. It's why we have so much red. I was just going to say that and that kind of scares me. (laughs) One thing that I really like about this episode is that you get a glimpse at the actual historical phenomena that was the Sherlock Holmes stories, which London went absolutely mad for in the 1890s. It's worth noting that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was fairly pissy about the character that made him immortally famous. He wanted to write historical and scientific novels, and he resented the public's incessant demands for more stories about Holmes and Watson. I don't want to sell out. He may stream... 
One of his best-known stories is alluded to in th- in this episode, The Final Problem, in which Sherlock falls to his death in Switzerland's Reichenbach Falls. Conan Doyle was so desperate to get out of writing more about Sherlock that he actually set out to kill him off. People were furious, and The Strand lost 20,000 subscribers in protest, proving that incredibly intense fan reactions are not unique to the television age, and under protest and duress, Doyle brought him back and picked up the series again. George R.R. R. Martin, please take note of this. The Sherlock series is filled with sly winks to the original stories, and this episode draws from several of them. The main plot is drawn from a quick passing reference in the story The Adventure of the Musgrave Ritual, in which there's just one line about Riccoletti and his abominable wife, but there are also elements drawn from The Five Orange Pips, And, of course, the final problem, which was also heavily adapted for the season two finale of this show. It's fair to say that Sherlock Holmes might have the largest extended universe of any character in fiction, with hundreds of adaptations that place the characters in new settings, give them interesting backstories or new challenges, or, as with this episode, create entire stories based on a passing canonical reference. Oh, and there's the new Enola Holmes on Netflix, which I haven't seen yet. We'll get to it. But I think the world's intense and durable love for these characters is best expressed in a poem that I happen to love by Vincent Starrett that starts, Here dwell together still two men of note, who never lived and so can never die. How very near they seem, yet how remote, that age before the world went all awry. And it ends, Here, though the world explode, these two survive. And it is always 1895. When the gang goes to talk with Mycroft, he says that they face an enemy greater than any England has ever known, and Martin Freeman starts rattling off a list of suspects like socialists, anarchists, and the French. Anarchist terrorism was actually a concern at this time in Europe and America. For example, Tsar Alexander II was assassinated in 1881 by a secret society-style group, Narodnia Volna, I'm sure I nailed that, that opposed his governmental reforms. Empress Elizabeth of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, also named Sisi, and who inspired how I dress for my wedding, was assassinated by an Italian anarchist in 1898 and President McKinley was killed by an anarchist in 1901. But heads of state weren't the only people targeted. In 1894, a French anarchist named Martial Bourdain tried to blow up the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. His explosives detonated early, and he died a horrible death. Victor Conrad based his 1907 book, The Secret Agent, on this event. A Bloomberg Opinion article even labels the late 19th century as America's first age of terror, The invention of dynamite in 1865 helped anarchists carry out various terrorist attacks from the 1880s to the 1910s, the first being in 1886 when someone threw a bomb during a labor demonstration at Haymarket Square in Chicago. This helped create a specter of underground, subversive political groups as a threat to the country. And side note, Jack London wrote a book poking fun at this perceived threat of assassins called The Assassination Bureau Limited. It is amusing and I recommend it. So, The Strand Magazine was a real publication, and it was named after the major street, The Strand, near the magazine's offices. It started publication right at the end of 1890. Arthur Conan Doyle actually published a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories in The Strand. Some other famous mystery writers did as well, such as Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, and Marjorie Allingham, and other writers who published there included H.G. Wells, Tolstoy, Kipling, Graham Greene, and P.G. Wodehouse. The Strand stopped publication in 1950, but in 1998, it was brought back as a quarterly in Michigan. So now the big question. How many deerstalker hats are we awarding to the Abominable Bride? Well, I thought about this a bit. My ardor for the series dimmed towards the end, and that really tempted me to score lower. But in fairness, I'm going to give the score I would have given the first time I saw it, which is three deerstalker hats. It's fun entertainment. It's spooky. 
but I'm not particularly devoted to it. I am, to borrow a line, hopelessly devoted to it. I am trying not to let my affection for Sherlock in general and Benedict Cumberbatch in particular skew my very serious, important academic, historical, podcast, professional feelings, but I remember thinking very clearly after my first viewing of this episode, Lo These Many Years Ago. It was like four years ago. And that... That was a long time ago. Notice anything about 2020. Anyway, that I remember thinking that it was one of the single best episodes of television I had ever seen. Maybe they just calibrated it perfectly to strike all of what Sherlock would call my pressure points, but I love the story within a story framing and the story generally, the perfect level of creepiness, the characters and their arcs, the creative staging and sets, the sly little winks at the original stories and at the modern series, and just everything about it. And would you judge me if I gave it five deerstalker hats. Yes. I'm gonna give it five deerstalker hats. Let the judging begin. Finally, a few sundry other notes. We are ringing in Benedict Cumberbatch's second appearance on the podcast, the first being Amazing Grace, all the way back to our second episode, which if you're new here, we highly recommend you go listen to only because I really, really, really love that movie. A number of scenes, including the affair at the Carmichael's, were filmed at Tinsfield, which is a gothic revival estate in North Somerset. Even though it looks ancient and spooky, the place was originally built in the 1830s and then expanded and made to look medieval in the 1860s. When I was trying to find out how to pronounce the name for this episode, like almost every single video on YouTube just has nice footage of the grounds and classical music. Finally, one video actually says the name, but it took like two whole minutes to get there. Is the name Tensfield akin to Voldemort? It felt like that guy was going out of the way not to say the name. I think he knew it's what you were looking for. The estate which must not be named. <laughs> when Amelia meets up with her husband after she supposedly kills herself, she refers to them having a shotgun wedding right before shooting him. Nice. <laughs> While I don't think the writers meant to go this deep with their historic analysis, it is a clue to the audience that Amelia has some familiarity with America, which is an important plot point regarding the orange seeds, the scary, scary orange seeds, because the phrase is American in origin, and as the website Word Histories indicates, it entered the lexicon at some point in the second half of the 19th century. Not to be that person, but I'm going to be that person. person. I would never assume that the Sherlock writers did not intend to go that deep. Anyway, in other word history, the reference to a Viennese alienist is about Sigmund Freud. Alienist is the original term for a psychiatrist and was used in 1864. So Molly Hooper is the only major character in the show who isn't canonical to the original stories. They brought her in for a bit part in the first episode, and it turned out that Lube really just had such great chemistry with the cast in general, and Cumberbatch in particular, that they created her a permanent role. Oh, to have that much chemistry with Benedict Cumberbatch. Anyway. Anyway, while she fails to pass convincingly as a dude for purposes of this story, there are plenty of instances throughout history of women posing as men to pursue jobs that didn't officially permit women. We know that at least 400 women managed to serve as soldiers during the Civil War, and the Civil War Medical Museum in Frederick, Maryland, which is also making its second appearance on this podcast, devotes a terrific exhibit to their stories. But this wasn't just limited to the battlefield. Dr. James Barry is one prominent example in British history. Dr. Barry was a gifted military doctor who eventually rose to serve as Inspector General of British military hospitals, occasionally fighting with Florence Nightingale along the way. 
After the good doctor's death in 1865, the person tasked with preparing the body for burial realized that Dr. James Barry was actually a woman. Born Margaret Ann Bulkley in Cork, Ireland in the late 1700s, she dreamed of becoming a soldier, but at the age of 19, disguised herself as a man so she could enter medical school, which was banned for women at the time. And the school was actually always pretty sure that James was lying not about his gender, but about his age. And they totally thought that they'd given a diploma to a 12-year-old boy. Doogie Hauser, 19th century. We see a brief glimpse into an opium den in the Limehouse district that Riccoletti frequents. The UK has a long history with opium in China, and without going into too much detail, since there's a movie about it we might want to review in the future, the British essentially deliberately disrupted the Chinese economy and created numerous addicts with flooding the Chinese markets with opium, and there were two wars fought over this. Anyway, the Limehouse District, where there were some opium dens in Chinese residents, got publicized as this majorly corrupting, foreign, evil influence on pure and righteous Victorian values in both the news and literature, particularly with some of Dickens' works. This only, as you can imagine, exacerbated prejudice against Chinese people. Final side note, in one of the Victorian scenes, we see Holmes meditating in his flat. I assume that the British probably had some knowledge about Buddhist practices from the British presence in India, and it turns out that a British group formed to study Buddhist texts in 1881, so it checks out. There are certainly some topics in The Abominable Bride that we'll go into more deeply in future episodes, particularly the women's suffrage movement in the UK, which we're slated to cover in about a month when we review the 2015 film Suffragette. In the meantime, join us next week for our second entry in spooky October... The 1996 film based on the 1953 play based on the Salem Witch Panic, The Crucible. The Crucible, The Crucible, The Crucible, The Crucible. Is this how you feel when I sing? Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. (laughs) 